one of my personnel had it to go and conduct an investigation on a game farm. So everything went hunky-dory while he was uh, collecting the computer, everything. But when he drove back to the gate to, to actually exit the game farm, the game wardens was waiting for him with uh, firearms. And they actually took the evidence off of him uh, because one of them was actually the criminal involved in it. Hello and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who's definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity, to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Brian, I think we're all pretty clued up on the cyber threat landscape. We know about the types of attacks and what security solutions there are to protect organizations, as an example, but we don't often get to hear about what happens after. How are investigations conducted and what's being done to try and stop criminals from committing more attacks, as an example? That's so true, Alice. I'm sure it must be an incredibly interesting line of work. So interesting, in fact, that it is our topic for today. Our guest is Danny Meyerberg. He's a digital forensics expert and is the managing director of Cianre, the digital forensics lab. They specialize in digital forensic investigations, data fraud trend analysis, incident response, e-discovery services, and litigation support services. Danny was responsible for establishing the National Computer Crime Investigation Unit for the South African Police Services, SAPS, and was appointed as commander, which is the position he held until his resignation. He's qualified as ENCE and SCERS and was trained in computer crime, internet and hacking investigations by the FBI and the French police. Wow. Welcome, Danny. And thanks uh, for being with us today. Thanks, you guys. It's really a pleasure. So digital forensics sounds absolutely fascinating, but we always like to kind of start from the beginning a little. How would you explain to somebody your job at a dinner party or your previous job at a dinner party, for an example? Basically, what we do is we assist clients in terms of conducting investigations, type of crime where a computer plays a role. With the cyber type crimes, we are more engaged in terms of assisting clients during an attack to get their networks back, to get the hackers out of the environment and to get them back into a working environment. So, Danny, we did a, a bit of a whistle-stop review of your career in the introduction. Could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about yourself? We sort of touched on the police side of things, but how did you get into the industry and, and what has been your professional background to date? The main thing I think where I started off uh, is, is I was trained by experience. Uh, starting off in law enforcement, they were looking for a strong manager to establish a digital forensic capacity. And that's where basically my career in the digital forensic environment kicked off. Uh, from there, um, I was fortunate enough to uh, occupy a number of positions. Uh, the manager of Deloitte and Tusha's um, digital forensic capacity, getting involved in Interpol, being the chairman of the Cyber Forum, um, being currently the chairman of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, the Cyber Forum. I used to be the, the youngest person in, in a meeting talking about cybercrime, especially amongst all the older uh, police generals. Uh, nowadays, I tend to be more one of the older people in the conversation. It's the younger chaps that, that's got the technical skills. And about a month ago, I was appointed as an associate professor at Northwest University. 
Absolutely. And it sounds like you've got so many amazing accolades to your name and uh, experiences that you've had across such a wide span of a career. If somebody were to look into coming into this profession, you know, potentially following in some of your footsteps, what advice would you give to maybe our listeners who are looking at embarking on this journey? Typically, what we see in the digital forensic environment is we need a very, very strong IT background. Uh, So your IT knowledge needs to be on par. But there's also a requirement in terms of understanding the law. Uh, Everything that we do in terms of investigating fraud and corruption typically ends up in a a court of law. Um, So having a good understanding of the law, what is permitted, what are you allowed to do, and then also understanding how to investigate types of crimes. So typically, if, if I tell you that, listen, you need to investigate hackers being on a bank environment for a month, you need to place yourself inside that hacker's frame of mind. What would he be interested in? What would he be doing? Um, so a lot of times we need to have very strong uh, investigative skills combined with your IT um, background. Okay, I mean, that's fascinating. That kind of talks to the old bag it and tag it and make sure that the um, chain of custody doesn't get broken. I mean, that applies in the analog world as much as it applies in the digital world. And, and you worked in digital forensics before cybercrime really took off. Um, uh, you know, especially in South Africa. Uh, so back maybe in the early 2000s, if we can go that far back, you know, cybercrime was still something we really sort of saw in movies. It was obviously there, but it didn't really have the kind of attention that it's having today. H- how have things changed in your line of work over the last two decades? In 2000, if you, if you can take you back, even in South Africa, we didn't recognize data as a tangible item. Well, it's still not a tangible item, but the unfortunate part is back in 2000, only tangible items could be stolen. So I could not prosecute anybody for stealing data. So just think for yourself in terms of intellectual property, all of that. Uh, Luckily, in 2002, we got the Electronic Transaction Communication Act. Um, And what we've seen in the last 18 months is we are getting very nice legislation in place. If I talk about the Poppy Act, which everybody would be aware of in terms of protecting your privacy, and we're talking about the, the cyber Act coming into to practice as well. Combined with the ECT Act, we've, a, we've got a lot more relevant uh, legal teeth to fight these type of attacks. So we've seen that the, the legislation has become a lot stronger that we can utilize to, to fight these type of crimes. But we have seen a level of sophistication that we've never seen in, ta- in the types of attacks. In the olden days, it was people just using computers as a tool in terms of falsifying invoices, that type of thing. Currently, we're seeing groups of hackers combining together syndicates, attacking where they're executing anything from 800 to 1,500 scripts within the first five minutes of the attacks. So really sophisticated attacks. So I'd just like to sort of pause for a minute and just focus on the legislation. South Africa, I think, has lagged behind some of the rest of the world. How important is it for countries to have sophisticated cyber laws in place? And, and how much does that actually assist investigations and prosecutions if those, if those laws are there? I know we're kind of being, try and generalize if it's possible, um, because we, we, we're talking across a number of countries, but maybe talk to the South African experience of what it was like when the laws weren't specific enough. Now we've got the Cyber Crimes Act coming into play. Maybe that's going to help things. I mean, what's your view on that? Um, there's a one side in terms of preventing these type of crimes, but the most important one is to actually deter these type of crimes. Uh, 
And we can only do that if we are successful in our investigations, number one. And number two, that we are successful in terms of prosecuting the people for it. Brian, you mentioned a little bit earlier in terms of, you know, we've got the old bag and tag. And that's where law enforcement and investigators a lot of times lose their cases in not following the right processes. And they, they basically do a lot of work, really good work, but they lose the cases in court. Now, underlying all of that is the legislation, and that is a global problem that we've got and a global requirement as well. In the olden days, we were faced with a situation that because of the fact that South Africa didn't recognize data um, or intangible devices necessarily, and we didn't describe or you know, um, had a definition in terms of what is illegal access into data systems, we could not effectively charge people for it. Also, we're sitting with a situation is where if a person is sitting in um, Zambia, Nigeria, wherever, if they don't have legislation that's on par with South Africa, if they do attack South Africa, we could not necessarily request the Nigerian government to, to prosecute them. That's why the, 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 the requirement globally is to have good legislation that defines these type of crimes, but also those type of legislation needs to speak to each other. The definition for illegal access of data needs to be the same nearly globally so that we can pros uh, you know, prosecute people cross-border um, and get international cooperation with these investigations. Um, so you actually sparked off two questions for me there. Um, initially, I, I had a question around, um, you know, how do you typically conduct your investigations? And I've, but then you also mentioned around the uh, cross-regional cross global investigations. So if we start off with the first one, how do you typically conduct your investigations? Okay, we've got two sides to digital forensics. In, in the one is, you know, where uh, a computer system is used as the tool uh, or the medium through which the, the crime is committed. And secondly, uh, we've got a situation where a computer system is the victim of the crime, if I can, you know, in layman's terms, describe it. So on the first set, we, we're dealing with old-fashioned um, corruption, uh, tender fraud, the big stuff that's currently happening in South Africa. Everything that's in front of the Zondo Commission was more or less perpetrated via computers or on computers there was evidence of all of these bad dealings in terms of corruption, etc. So in terms of investigating those type of crimes, you need to follow uh, internationally recognized digital forensic investigation processes. Um, you need to have standard operating procedures. So we can't just go in and for example, uh, take a, a suspect's computer and start trawling through it. Because that activity of the investigator actually, as you're going through that computer, changes the properties of a file, the last access date, the creation date, maybe who printed the document, and all of that is valuable. So if you can't prove in a, a court of law that the evidence that you're actually presenting was never changed by your analysis, um, the courts won't, uh, won't accept it. So if a, a suspect can come in and show that, listen, the investigator actually uh, modified a, a, a file, how can you show a court afterwards, you know, what modification was done? Then we're sitting with a situation where systems are being hacked. Now, we can't stop and switch everything off or make backups. That's a live investigation, and we need to investigate it while that attack is taking place. Also taking into consideration that we need to block it. 
So typically we want to go through different stages there in terms of containing that attack, eradicating the hackers, and then get down to a digital forensic investigation or a recovery or a reconstruction of that environment. And when you mentioned there as well around, you know, your cross-regional and your global investigations, how do you find that impacts your investigations that you have on, on cybercrime in particular? Well, I think one of the most challenging things of, of cyber attacks is the, the situation where a person can sit in any location globally and attack anybody else globally. We from South Africa, are, our courts have got jurisdiction in terms of South Africa and our, mem our, our citizens as well as our devices. But then, for example, if a person's got their server in Bucharest, I need to contact the local police force here in South Africa, lodge a complaint, they contact Interpol, Interpol um, contacts Budapest's law enforcement agency. So that process can take anything up to three months to six months. But then we discover that that was only a hop. Uh, the person was actually sitting in London. And then you have to do exactly apply the same process to, to get access and cooperation in London. So it is very time consuming. We've got um, global treaties that we try to speed this up. We've got nodal points in all the uh, treaty countries where we can contact them directly and speed up the investigations. But that mere fact makes it really complicated to conduct investigations unless you've got a global uh, cooperation, maybe a task team that, that binds together and actively investigate the specific syndicates. Something that I've heard from a number of, of other organizations that operate in this space is that typically the um, threat actors will try and perpetrate crimes from one country to another country. So, um, you know, from country A, well, they'll actually won't target anyone inside country A if they're located in country A, they'll target country B and vice versa. Um, are you seeing those sorts of trends growing? Are you seeing the sophistication of not just the type of attacks in terms of the technical sophistication, but I'm um, trying to think of a good term for it, maybe the legal sophistication. Do you, do, do you see that growing? Definitely. We are seeing that the, the, the number of attacks, specifically cyber-related, your, your hacking-type uh, attacks, predominantly nowadays are being perpetrated from um, the East Bloc countries as well as from East and West African syndicates. In the olden days, it was quite easy to spot some of these um, attacks because you could see just from the language, you know, when they were using a phishing mail or setting up a, a spoofed website, just from the language, you could see this, this was not translated or not compiled by an English-speaking person. What we're currently seeing is that they do employ local uh, people to assist them. Um, so the level of the attack in terms of just the content with which they entice a person to, you know, um, uh, get involved in this type of thing, um, they have really upped that and they make it very specific. So what we're seeing is South Africa will go through a, a tax season um, and typically within that period, we'll have a lot of uh, phishing mails that's specifically focusing on tax and tax submissions. And then you'll go into a different season in terms of uh, we might have big rugby matches going on. Then the syndicates will split over to uh, doing deposit scams. So they'll advertise um, accommodation within that rugby playing areas or soccer playing areas and steal the people's deposits. 
And all of that coming from, or the majority of it coming from overseas syndicates with collaboration of local um, uh, criminals. I'd just like to maybe turn to something you touched on a little bit earlier was this concept of the the digital chain of custody. And, and just to kind of remind our listeners, that's sort of the equivalent of that if a murder has been committed and there's a bullet casing, you know, you can't just pick it up with your fingers because then that'll put your fingerprints on it and you'll sort of taint that chain of custody. And is it becoming more difficult to, to sort of maintain that chain of custody when you're going cross country, multiple hops, um, you know, diff, diff, different affiliates in different areas? Um, it's it's definitely challenging, but uh, because of the fact that we globally, um, you know, adhere to the ISO standards, um, it makes it a lot easier for us. So my evidence that I collect in South Africa will also be recognized as original and unaltered in America or, or any uh, country that's got, you know, up to standard uh, digital forensic legislation. So one of my qualifications is actually um, qualified as a, a seized computer evidence recovery specialist. And that's one of the requirements to, to testify in America in terms of digital evidence. So we do have a lot of people that get cross-border training. Um, here in South Africa, we are benefiting from agreements that we've got with the French police, for example, the US Secret Service, the, the FBI, etc. And we get a lot of training locally for our law enforcement from those international bodies. So it makes it a lot easier if we need to do these large um, cross-border investigations. And when you're conducting your investigations into, um, you know, cyber attacks, as you mentioned, ransomware is is uh, very big and, and trending at the moment. What areas keep you up at night? What areas cause you a lot of concern for, say, currently today and also for, for future? What we are seeing is we're seeing there's a large uptake in, um, in double extortion and triple extortion cases. What I mean with that is in the past, what a hacker would do, they would break into the environment. They would, your, especially your black hat hatters, they would like to stay undetected in the environment, um, maybe steal some credit card information over a period and take that out and sell it on the, the, the dark web. But what we're seeing now is with the, the data exfiltration, ransom that's been asked for that data that's, that's exported, as well as the ransom executions where they encrypt all your data and ask a ransom price to decrypt it, that the guys don't care to be uh, stealthy anymore. So they'll come in within a period of about 28 days, they do what they want to do, and um, they either execute one of the two, steal your data or encrypt the environment. What we've seen in the last year and a half more or less is that they start doing both. They first steal the data and then encrypt the environment, and they extort you for both those. But the newest trend is now to uh, exfiltrate your data, uh, encrypt your environment, extort you for both of those, and the hackers then start working through that exfiltrated data. So they'll identify, for example, if it's medical information, they will start extorting the different uh, data subjects inside that data set um, by extorting them for money as well. One of the challenges that we've got is we've seen in the past year, we've seen so many big data compromises in South Africa that I'm asking myself the question, whose data has not been stolen yet? I think all of us that's on this call, our ID numbers, our email addresses, our telephone numbers, uh, if we're lucky, uh, you know, hopefully not passwords, et cetera, has been compromised by some of the 
mainline hacking situ uh, hacking uh, instances that we've seen in the newspapers. What would be your biggest advice to companies, for example, to ensure that they can correctly protect themselves as much as they can? Uh, one of the worst things that you can do is not be prepared for it. So we want to focus on the, the prevention. We want to focus on the detection. But if you don't prepare for, if it does happen to us, and it will to everybody, um, you know, even in your, your private uh, capacity, um, preparing for it could be the best thing that you can do. Never wait for a situation where you're in a crisis situation and all of a sudden you need to start phoning around to say, ooh, uh, who will assist me in terms of um, investigating this or getting them out of my environment? We see that even the big listed companies in South Africa doesn't have extra capacity to maintain their systems, keep on going with their business, and in, in the meantime, also handle a large-scale attack against them. So everybody needs additional hands. So I would say beforehand, do exercises like uh, fishing simulations, do an incident response uh, simulation. Do you have an incident response plan? Do you know who to phone if something like that happens? Even your internal personnel, you know, who do they notify? What actions do they need to take? Those type of things. From a more practical point of view, in terms of safeguarding your environment, um, we see that predominantly people are using the same passwords all over. Um, phishing is still one of the biggest type of attacks that hackers are using. We see that unprotected mail accounts and RDP and VPN connections into your environment is a big cause. Um, outdated patches and outdated operating systems is also a huge, huge problem. And then one of the biggest things that you can do to, to limit damage to your organization is make sure that your backups are, off, are offline and that they're actually working fine. A lot of times we see that that saves millions of rands. You just think of it, you know, if a, if a hacker gets into your environment, encrypts all your data, asks for 20 million rand. And by the way, currently what we're seeing is anything between 20 and 80 million rand is, is the, the standard asking price. So if they encrypt all your environment, all your data, but you've got all fine backup, you can immediately save that 20 million rand ransom amount because we just tell them take a hike you format the servers and you pop your backups back in i think that's really really good advice um you know there's we also find the number of organizations that haven't even determined whether or not they're willing to pay a ransom um and uh, you know our advice is is probably 99 of the time not to pay a ransom if you've done all of those sort of basic hygiene things you've just described first do you think enough is being done First of all, to kind of gather evidence from the from the victim side of things, if the organizations are victims of cybercrime. And secondly, just from a law enforcement side, do you think enough is being done to track down cyber criminals? You know, should should more being done? And, and if so, what? So number one, if we just uh, take in consideration that the Poppy Act recently came into full force, that changes the total landscape in terms of conducting your investigations. Prior to the Poppy Act, we saw that a lot of people would um, address the problem and just sweep the whole incident under the carpet. There was no requirement on them to report it, etc. Currently, what we're sitting with the Poppy Act is you need to go and report those instances, even if there was a possibility of illegal access to that data. So there's a legal requirement on you. Um, there can still be people that think, you know, let's sweep this under the carpet. My advice to them would be that would be really dangerous to do. We're seeing with social media and people, even employees that's standing up and doing the right thing, 
uh, whistleblowing and, and you know distributing this news on on social media that eventually it will leak out it will come out and then you're going to sit with a really a bad reputation and most probably being prosecuted for for hiding this fact as well so unless you actually conduct a fully fledged deep dive forensic investigation into that incident it's going to be very, very difficult answering and reporting back to the information regulator on some of these aspects. Um, you can be sued afterwards in terms of, of, of data subjects whose information was leaked. Uh, you can also you know, be penalized by the information regulator. But if you've got a report that actually stipulates and shows beyond reasonable doubt that there was no data that was accessed, there was no data that was taken out, it places you in a lot better or in a much better situation. In terms of law enforcement, unfortunately, uh, I don't think that there is enough budget being allocated to these type of uh, specialized skills. Uh, I think faster than what the, the police force can actually train staff, they are losing them to the private sector. Um, which I think can only be solved if we really go in an environment where we identify individuals, we pay them a salary that is uh, market-related, and we build up a capacity. So no, I don't think our law enforcement really is up to standard or capable of addressing. Although they want to, and although they've got really uh, good people in there, I don't think we've got the scale uh, to actually effectively curb cybercrime currently in South Africa. Have you ever been in a particularly hairy situation, um, you know, potentially dangerous or, or just interesting uh, and difficult that you that you are able to share with us? We've we've had a couple of situations where people threatened to come and burn down our offices. We've had death threats uh, because we do get involved in political investigations uh, here in South Africa as well. So um, I think the one thing that that does is. One of my personnel had it to go and conduct an investigation on a game farm. Um, it was one of the employees. So everything went hunky-dory while he was uh, collecting the computer, everything. But when he drove back to the gate to, to actually exit the game farm, the game wardens was waiting for him with uh, firearms. And they actually took the evidence off of him uh, because one of them was actually the criminal involved in it. So uh, we've had, we've, we've faced situations like that. Um, we typically deal with cases that goes to court. So we can face international um, lawyers. We do get in, in, involved in those type of cases. So it's not unheard of for us to go to court and have nine um, lawyers with nine different um, suspects that is actually cross-examining you. Uh, one of my personnel actually spent more than 91 days uh, in examination and, and testimony, uh, distributed over you know a number of uh, postponements in the case. But to face cross-examination for 91 days on a matter is is quite daunting. Um, so we have uh, quite big challenges in terms of. Uh, you you can't just you know use your typical IT person uh, to conduct these type of investigations because a lot of times that person um, is not prepared to also stand up in a court and be tested and take that strain as well. So it's it's it's, it's one of the sides of of what we do is to to actually you know go and defend the matter or, or answer to a court what exactly happened or what we found.
But Danny, it's been really, really interesting talking to you. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us today. As usual, we could probably have uh, carried on talking for hours. There's just, I'm sure you have you know, many more interesting stories and we hope to have you back again to, to share some of those with you. But we'd always like to end our, our episodes by asking our guests three simple questions. So Danny, looking back over your career, what's the one insight that you'd wish you'd known sooner or maybe that you could go back and tell your younger self? Um, looking at the, the entrepreneur in me, I would have advised myself to take maybe more and more daring or bigger uh, challenges on and, and take on uh, bigger risks. And then uh, on the other side, I wish I'd bought more Bitcoin earlier on. <laughs> what are you reading or, or listening to at the moment? Uh, you know, is there anything that you'd recommend for our listeners? It's, it's a little bit embarrassing, uh, but um, I'm, I'm reading, the, the one book I'm reading is Bitcoin for Dummies. Uh, just to get the basics on, on uh, a blockchain uh, <laughs> in, in perspective. Um, I'm currently doing my CCBI, it's a Certified Cryptocurrency and Blockchain Investigation, um, because I, we see that blockchain is one of the areas where a lot of the crime, the proceeds of crime are going to, and there isn't a really a strong uh, investigation capacity on it. And if we're looking towards the future, say this time next year, where do you think we'll be in terms of digital forensics and what trends do you think we'll see? A big requirement for the local police services is to publish the SOP standing operating procedures in terms of the, the recently promulgated uh, Cyber Bill, uh, Cyber Act. So I think we are going to see that there's a lot more prosecutions taking place in South Africa. On the other side, the, the other side of the, the coin, I think in terms of the crimes that we're going to see, we are going to see a lot more sophistication. We are going to see a lot more reports uh, uh, with the information regulator. And I think we are going to see more double and triple um, extortions. So thank you so much, Danny, for talking with us today. We've definitely learned a huge amount. And as Brian said, I think we'll have to have you back because I think we could have carried on our discussion for <laughs> much, much longer. Do you have any final recommendations that maybe we haven't covered today? I think the, the last uh, parting words from my side is approach cybercrime and your cyber risks and your planning in terms of cybercrime um, from the perspective of when it happens to you, what will you do, as opposed to, you know, if it ever happens to us. Uh, be prepared for it um, and uh, then just, you know, um, you'll be able to, to manage the situation a lot better. That's great advice. Thank you. And uh, finally, where can our listeners learn more about Danny Myberg and uh, Sian Ray? Um, I think the best uh, it would be to visit our website. Um, our website address www.cianre, C-Y-A-N for Nelly, R-E.co.za. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Danny, for your time today. And thank you also to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today. Until next time, everyone. 